Hear now the word of the Lord. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your, hu- your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you and worship God with you. And now uh, go over the Word of God. Uh, Before I start, though, I would like to say I think Peter's prayer was powerful and really wonderful. Um, Some of us have been anxious about the upcoming elections. And I just want to let you know that I have been praying for you and the members of this church. But God is sovereign, and He is the King of Kings, And he is the Lord of presidents. No matter who becomes president, God will always reign. That being said, the burden of weight on voting seems to be heavier in this particular election year. Perhaps it's the four years of constant political news that you've been exposed to from the media. Perhaps there is some truth in the warnings that people have been constantly giving on the gravity of your vote this time. Perhaps it's also because so many of you are young and in your 20s and 30s and you're finally maturing and taking your civic duty with seriousness. But perhaps it's many of the above, if not all the above. As a Christian, I would remind you that before your civic duty, you have a divine duty that is to glorify God. And yes, we are to glorify God even in our politics. This is how God's people can transcend earthly politics to see what the Lord would want. So I urge you to pray, listen to God's word, and surround yourself with godly people. And what we do now matters. How you vote does matter. But it's because how you live matters. And this is why we go over every portion of Scripture. That is, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the true man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And if you still have trouble, I urge you to listen to the Dear Church podcast. In recent episodes, uh, Sam and I have been going over some political platforms, seeing where the Bible is clear and definitive on some issues, but also where we have liberty but it's all to the glory of God. Let's pray before we start. 
Prepare our hearts, O Lord, to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may also obey your will. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In last week's passage, we were able to listen to or on the gift of marriage and also the gift of celibacy, which we'll call, for just the purposes of this sermon, we'll we'll call that the general principle on marriage. And the general principle on marriage boiled down to this, the giving of oneself. It's the giving of oneself. That's the point. We We see that in marriage, the husband's body does not belong to the husband, but to the wife. And likewise, the wife's body does not belong to the wife, but to the husband. Paul himself was not married, uh, but he should have been because when he was commissioned by the Sanhedrin, like we would read in Acts 26.10, and if he was part of this rabbinical order, then they would have required that he be married. In the Talmud, which is uh, just a gathering of rabbinical teachings, in the Talmud, if a man was 20 and and not yet married, they would say, blasted be his bones. (laughs) So this is pretty serious stuff. If you're 20 and you're not married yet, there's something wrong with you. So that means he was either widowed or his wife may have even left him perhaps when she found out he was Christian. Whatever the case, he is unmarried now. And he ended the passage before we started this one, that he wished all that he was, meaning unmarried. He wished to all that he, they could be like him, meaning unmarried, but he would say, Each one has his own gift from God. So let's start from there. What does that mean? Paul really sees celibacy as an extremely wonderful gift. And if you really appreciate something, wouldn't you want everybody to know the goodness of it? Wouldn't you want everybody, in a sense, to have it? So he's sharing about his own giftings and how it really is an incredible blessing. However, the particular matter was that each one has their own gifting. So what should that tell us? Whatever gifts that you have been given, whatever gifts that you have been given, you should be like Paul in expressing your gratitude and sharing that joy with others in the church. Is it marriage? Is it celibacy? You share that joy of the gift that you've gotten from Christ with others. So once Paul goes over the general principles of marriage from verses 1 through 7, he's going to go into some nuances that we're going to go over today. Some of you may have read it and said, this doesn't particularly seem like anything exciting or special. But you have to see, Paul here is a very well-educated man. He knows that the people in Corinth saw and viewed sexuality in a variety of different ways. It wasn't simply this one or this one or black or white, and he's going to start addressing all of them in this passage and on. 
in particular in this passage, he will address four of these kinds of groups. Four of these kinds of groups. In society today, marriage rates have been slowly declining over the years. But for whatever reason, the divorce rates have stayed the same. So marriage rates have been declining, but of the married, the divorce rates have stayed the same. It's always 40 to 50%. Every year, always 40 to 50%. I believe last year was like 44%. And I am intrigued by the culture shift of even the popular songs that once idolized love, you know? I grew up listening and then I loved like getting these collections from like Frank Sinatra and listening to these love songs. But it would idolize love, but now if you listen to the more recent songs, they idolize sex. As if that would correct our ails and ills. One of the more popular hip hop artists who have hit the top charts, top of the charts with a song about how they could get any man to sleep with them is now getting a divorce with her husband because of his marital infidelity. We also face so many similar things with the things that are going on in Corinth. And I'm glad that we're starting to see, wait a minute, all the stuff that's happening today, it also happened like 2,000 years ago. We're not that much better. In fact, I will continue to encourage you to understand that without God, you are not that much better than someone even 2,000 years ago. In the first verse of this chapter, Paul is addressing the concerns that the church in Corinth had written to him. They wrote to him. They asked him questions. They emailed podcast.cgsnj.org and they wrote him regarding marriage and sexual relations. And like every area of life, the Corinthians couldn't get sex and marriage right either. So now Paul will deal with a spectrum of this idea from singleness to marriage, this whole spectrum. And there were so many different kinds of thoughts on this. You can kind of get a little lost. Um, but for to this morning's purpose, uh, let's start with the straightforward way for now. There were basically three kinds of marriages in the ancient Roman or the Greco-Roman world. Uh, the first one simply was by bread. Uh, if you read the Latin phrase, it's by bread. One, and then the second one was, one was by purchase, and the third one was by cohabitation. That means they live together. So the bread part is confariatio, is where uh, you would get like split bread. That's what it literally means. You split bread together or cake. People started to wonder, like, why do we always have this cake ceremony in weddings? It's from this world. Thousands of years ago, people were splitting cake, right? And that's how you would get married. It means ceremony, right? That's why you're eating cake, not because wedding cakes taste good. Uh, so this breaking or splitting of bread or cake it was a ceremony. It was a ceremony, and it was reserved for patricians. Patricians, of course, were the ruling class or the class of power in the Roman world. So that was one way people would get married. There's another way, which was by purchase, and another way by cohabitation. And these two, purchase and cohabitation, were done by the plebeians, 
or in other words, the commoners, right? So there were other, like three ways, main ways that people, there were actually more, but there are three main ways that in, people in the Greco-Roman world would get married. But the important thing to note is that each one of these marriages came with its own set of rules and laws because they were so smart, so smart. So, for example, if you were married by cohabitation, that means you lived together and therefore you were married, then all the wife, the wife, not the husband, all the wife had to do was not stay at the house of her husband three consecutive nights, and then she then could avoid her legal responsibilities as a wife, whatever those were. So these were like complex, these were very elaborate rules and laws that the Romans and the Greeks had. The Jews, on the other hand, would say that if you weren't married, and in the Jewish custom, if you weren't married in the Jewish custom, the Jewish way, then you're outside of God's will. You have to get married in this certain and particular manner. And then there are also others who would advocate for celibacy. Others would say sex of any kind is fine. Sex is morally neutral, people. That's what they would say. Others specifically for homosexuality. Homosexuality was viewed even as the highest form of love. If you continue to read Plato's uh, Phaedrus or the Symposium, like Eros is not just erotic love, like ooh, erotic love for feelings. It was a high form of love that the Greeks loved discussing about. Then there were others who would say that you shouldn't be married. You should get a divorce. Others still that say you should stay married, but you shouldn't have intimacy with one another. I just gave you just a few, and now you can kind of start to understand why it was so complicated back when Paul was writing to the Corinthians. These are just a few of the spectrum of ideas that people thought about marriage. It's not that different from today where everybody has their own view of what they think marriage is like. So the Corinthian church had questions on marriage, much like people of today, because we also face problems much like the ancient Greeks and the Romans. Questions like, should single people get married or stay single? Are you better off staying single if you're not married yet? Should married people abstain from sexual relationships? Should a Christian who's married to a pagan, a.k.a. non-Christian, get a divorce? These were real questions that they were asking Paul, and he is answering and he is addressing those questions in this part of this chapter. We started the chapter with the teaching that marriage is good. It is normative. That means it is the norm, meaning it's for most people and that it's not an absolute command for everyone, but it's for most people. The reason why it's not a command for everyone to get married is because God has given some charisma. Charisma, which we translate it to gift, but charisma literally means gifts of grace. Gifts of grace. And when we saw 1 Corinthians chapter 1, these charismas or gifts of grace were dispensed by the Lord Jesus himself. And so if you have this charisma for celibacy, that means 
you have the unique ability by the gifting of Jesus Christ to control your sexual desire. So, if you don't have the gift, that means marriage would help us and keep us from sinning. Through it, we would avoid the sin of fornication and all kinds of sexual immorality. But if you're given this charisma, it was because you were being used by God in a special way. It wasn't gifting for gifting's sake. This is what people have to understand about charisma and spiritual gifts. People think maybe it's just a gift so I feel good. Jesus dispenses gifts to members of the church to build the church, to encourage the church, to edify the church, and glorify Him. So if you were given this charisma, it was because you were to use your body in a special way to serve God. And so Paul will address that today in today's passage. Excuse me. Four groups. Four groups. Number one is to the single or the unmarried. Number two is to the married and both are believers. Number three, the third group, is they are married and the unbeliever wants to stay in the marriage. Number four is they are married where one is an unbeliever and that unbeliever wants to leave the marriage. They want out. So there are four groups. And so he starts off, verse 8, with to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better, better to marry than to burn with passion. First, he addresses the unmarried and the widows. These are the single people in the church. This is where you would have single ministry. That's who he's addressing. But if you've read this, something might have stood out to you. You have to wonder why the special emphasis on widows, right? Aren't, the, aren't they the same as unmarried? Why didn't he just say unmarried or single people? Why the special emphasis on widows? You see, in the New Testament, the apostles consistently mention widows in their epistles and because widows were the most vulnerable in society. James mentions widows and orphans. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees even in Luke chapter 20, verse uh, 47, how the Pharisees would devour widows' houses and he would say that they will receive greater condemnation for doing as such. So we have to understand by these kind of special mentions, there is particular wisdom and truth that's being dispensed to us who are the most vulnerable in society today. Understanding Scripture it should come as no surprise that when Christians stand up for the ones that cannot speak for themselves, while it is the unborn infant today, in a similar fashion, widows were treated like garbage and refuse in the ancient world. You see, in the scriptures, the uplifting of the poor and downtrodden was what we were commanded to do. And so if you are unmarried, he says, if you're unmarried or you're a widow, but if you're unmarried, it's good to stay single. It isn't wrong. It isn't abnormal to be single. 
And if you're not single, if you're not single and you're listening to this, I really want you to hear this. Don't play Cupid. Don't play matchmaker, please. Some people's call in life is for them to remain single. Perhaps it's for a little while, but it's still a season of singleness that God has placed this person in. If you are single, that means God has placed you in this season of singleness. Paul was single and he loved it. He says it is good. You know what that means? It is good. That means singleness has its particular benefits. This is tough for society to receive. And that's why even the Corinthian church, the people in Corinth, they were so messed up. Sexually, they were all over the place, quite literally. They were all over the place because they didn't understand sex in the context of marriage and the way that God had designed it. But I get it. I get it. There are pressures today of being single. You feel left out. You can't hang with your friends who got married. It's getting weirder and weirder, weirder because they have all these things to talk about when they, when they come together. They always talk about their spouses or their family life or whatever. And then when it gets to your turn and they turn to you, it's, yo, when are you getting married? And during holidays, it can get especially rough. But you have to appreciate the brevity of Paul's statement. If you are single and he doesn't throw a pity party, he just goes, if you're single, that's good. That's good. Remember in Matthew when Jesus would go over the seriousness and weight of marriage, the punishment for adultery or even lusting, the seriousness of that, the disciples would automatically default to that it must not be better to get married at all. It must not be good to get married at all. And this is how Jesus responds. He goes, not everyone can receive this. Only to whom it is given. What we have to realize, singleness opens you up to all sorts of opportunities for service. You can serve the church without holding back. There is no spouse or kids to think about. And so for as long as it is given to you, you would serve God with all the energy that you have. But, but, if you cannot exercise self-control, get married. That's what he's saying. If you're burning with passion, there's a fire, right? There's a fire inside you, then get married. Then get married. You do not have the gift of celibacy. Get married if you have this burning desire. Here is where someone listening to this might respond. I want to get married, but I just can't seem to find anyone. I want to get married, but it's so hard to meet people. So I'll start off by saying that if this is the case, if this is the case, then watch out for sin. If this is the case, then watch out for sin. Sin may be creeping up in your heart. Lust, bitterness, all sorts of things can come up if you're not careful. So if you want to get married, 
if you want to get married, start from the understanding that we are shown here in Scripture. If you can stay single, stay single. But if you don't have the gift of celibacy, marry. That means this. It means that it is God's charisma for you to get married. It's God's gift to you for you to marry. And if it's God's gift to you, then He will provide you with a spouse. Otherwise, how would you be able to call it a gift? You'd call it a curse. But this is what that means too. That means we must stop being anxious about marriage. While you're anxious, that's when you'll get vulnerable, vulnerable, excuse me, to sin. Singleness means that you are working on your own character and your own personal sanctification. When you're anxious about marriage, you're no longer working on that, but spending your energies on something else because you're constantly anxious. Here's what happens then. When you do what God commands you, you start to get sanctified. You start to become more holy because that's what sanctification is. It means something that you work on. So instead of trying to meet the right girl, you become the right man. Instead of trying to meet the right boy, you become the right woman. Because if you're not the right person, you'll never meet the right partner. Now, if there is a flame and burning passion, please get married. You have that desire because marriage was given to you so that it would fulfill that desire. Don't date for 10 years. Don't have a long engagement. That doesn't make any sense. And if you've had it, you know, we'll talk, we'll talk about you in a bit. But don't date for like, like decades at a time. Don't have long, long engagements. This doesn't make any sense if you're reading this. If you're burning, then can you burn for years and years without sinning? Even if you're in a place where you are engaged and if it's for a long time, you will destroy your spiritual life. And it will take such a long time to recover from it if you even do it all. And if you're married now, but you committed fornication during your engagement, then stay humble. Stay humble. I don't know why you would even think about playing matchmaker. Why in the world would you be braggadocious and hold your marriage over someone else? Watch your comments to single people then. Encourage then rather. If you're married, encourage the single person to serve the Lord through physical labor and spiritual service. Don't seek, seek simply to get married. Then if you just seek simply to get married, then you'll be that person who just asks people out. Seek to find deep spiritual relationships. Seek to love one another as Christ has loved you. People who simply just seek to get married are people who are not seeking the true deep relationships. Because people who seek simply just to get married and people who are truly seeking deep spiritual relationships, they end up with different checklists. They do. So if you're single, take care in what you're watching, what you are literally being programmed with. So code your heart with divine instruction because that's the true reality. 
If you are single, that means God has given to you a life to live without sex for now. Meaning that God will provide for your every need and He's going to show that to you. I will provide everything that you need for every stage of your life. Where is your faith? And this is where even in your singleness then, you can be thankful. Let thankfulness permeate through your demeanor and your acts of service while you're single. Give glory to God. Now, the second group addressed is in verses 10 to 11. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. If you are Christians, and he's addressing the Corinthians, if you are Christians and you're married, Stay married. Not I, but the Lord. This parenthetical statement, not I, but the Lord, refers to what Jesus taught himself while he was on this earth. It should bring you to Matthew chapter 5, where he would say, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The only grounds for divorce in a Christian marriage is porneia, or sexual immorality. But Paul, right now, isn't writing on divorce. He's writing on marriage. And the purpose of that statement by our Lord was to show that the marriage bed must be kept pure. Don't divorce. Divorce wasn't tolerated in Old Testament times as well. And Malachi 2.16 says, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. And so by the time of uh, this writing, people had already gotten divorced. So Paul writes that if you have gotten divorced in verse 11, then you must either stay unmarried or reconcile to the partner that you were once married to. And again, the only grounds for divorce is sexual immorality. And this was even the case for Joseph, Mary's husband, or Mary's betrothed. In Matthew chapter 119, it says, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Mary was pregnant with our Lord Jesus Christ. Joseph didn't know, so this is what he decided to do. He didn't want to put her to shame, but he would divorce her quietly. But it says here that he was a just man. He was a righteous man. So, was he just or righteous because of his unwillingness to put her to shame? Or was he just and righteous because he resolved to actually divorce her for the sexual immorality that he thought that she had? The answer is both. Both. If one of those things were unjust, then Matthew wouldn't have said Joseph was just. So I say this to you with that caveat that this isn't a systematic um, treatise on divorce, right? Paul is answering specific questions that had been brought to him. So being single is good. If you're married, then stay married. Fulfill, then 
every aspect of marriage that you've heard from last week's sermon. Fulfill every aspect of marriage. That means enjoy one another. And not just any kind of enjoy. Enjoy like Song of Solomon enjoy. Like go there. Like start speaking poems. No, but go there where you're just enjoying every single aspect of your spouse. Fulfill that aspect of marriage. Verse 12, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. What does this even mean? But let's first go to the parenthetical statement. Now, in that parenthetical statement, I, not the Lord, doesn't mean these directions now aren't from God, as if Paul is saying, you don't need to heed my words. Or even worse, these words are contrary to what God wants. That's not what he's saying. In fact, if you go continue down in this chapter, go to verse 40, he states that he has the Spirit of God. But the way he states it is the most amazing and humble way. Just love him. But it's just that before he was taking directly from what Jesus had spoken, that they were passing down like quotes. But now he has stopped quoting Jesus. And if you really want to understand things like this as you read and things are getting confusing, uh, this is why I recommend to you sometimes Bible commentaries. I have a top three that I have freely shared these top three Bible commentaries, for me, I love them. And so they are a great resource. And uh, they're the ESV uh, Bible commentary. Uh, there's the Reformation Study Bible. And then there's the, um, the John MacArthur Study Bible. So these three study Bibles, I really, really enjoy. And I think they will be beneficial to anyone who would read them. But this section addresses the people that would have thought, well, I remember back in chapter 6, I remember you saying, Paul, that if I join with a prostitute, then am I not joining a member of Christ's body with her? So am I defiling Christ by joining myself with an unbeliever? This was a real question that people had. And again, this is an address to people who are already married. If you're single, you cannot marry a non-Christian. You are unequally yoked. And I might add, if you do that, you are incredibly prideful. They must be Christian if you're going to marry someone. And by Christian, I mean they must be repentant and baptized. They must be able to do the sacraments with you. They must grow as a Christian with you. But this section is addressing those that are already married to a non-believer. If they don't want to get divorced, if the non-believer doesn't want to get divorced, then don't divorce them yourselves. People at the time were accusing Christians. So people at the time were looking at the Christians in Corinth, and they were accusing Christians of breaking up families. First of all, first of all, if you look at even the cultural aspect of this, women were making decisions on faith matters. 
Back then, 2,000 years ago, that was unthinkable. But in Christ, Christian freedom started to set in. And women started to think on their own. They were starting to become Christians on their own. And back in the Greco-Roman world, that was unthinkable. Like, what is going on? Are you trying to destroy the family, Christians? And secondly, they were spending days and nights at the church. There are writings of husbands complaining because they would see Christian women just disappear at night. And what they, what they would do, follow them. They would follow them in these nocturnal gatherings, right? And they were kissing other men, like, what is going on? And specifically, I'm, I'm, I'm going to mention Tertullian, who would write about how one husband would say he didn't want his wife to go to these nocturnal convocations that were eventually to kiss some martyrs, right? Some Christians weren't behaving wisely, to say the least, but here's where this, I want to give you a little bit of context. I'm going to give you a little bit on the holy kiss, okay? The holy kiss was actually taken from society. Uh, in the Greco-Roman world, people greeted each other with an intimate kiss. And it wasn't only like the same gender. It was between a man and woman too. However, however, you didn't share this kiss with just anybody. It was with your immediate family. Those whom you were closest with, your kin, your blood, that's who you shared the intimate kiss with. And that was the intimate greeting between family members. And now Christians who realized that they were now family were now greeting each other as such. In fact, many times Paul will charge his readers to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, I'm not advocating that we bring that back in today. In fact, um, <clears throat> the church, early church fathers following the apostles had to tail it back a little because, and give specific instruction on how to kiss, uh, one, give a holy kiss to one another because uh, some people would like, do these kisses and like mm, doesn't seem too holy to me, right? And so... That's why they started to tail it back a little. And I think that was wise. But we aren't to miss the spirit of the holy kiss. The holy kiss was an intimate greeting for the immediate family. That's how we greet one another. We greet each other like we're immediate family members. And that's what Christians were doing. That's my bit on the holy kiss. Now going back... People were divorcing their spouses on account that they had this newfound family in Christ, right? And this was unwise and causing issues. And when they would reason, but won't this union defile me and effectively the body of Christ? And so this is where Paul says that the unbelieving spouse is made holy. This is a very, very deep verse where the unbelieving spouse is made holy literally made sanctified that's the word made sanctified now while the passage here doesn't specifically make the distinction it should be made and i'm going to make it this isn't talking about personal sanctification personal sanctification is something that you have to personally do no one else can do it for you however this is what scholars call the matrimonial sanctification here is where we understand that a christian has sanctifying influence. If you are a Christian, the immediate people around you will benefit. They will benefit because 
You know why? Because when God gives, He blesses you to overflow. That overflow will naturally hit those around you. And while short of salvation, it is far superior than living outside in a paganistic life. One Christian, one Christian indeed does grace the entire home. And God's judgments are even in accordance with this reasoning. Abraham asked God if he could not judge Sodom and Gomorrah, which were exceedingly wicked. They were exceedingly wicked. That means they were bad, bad, bad to the nth degree. If they had just 50 righteous people, these two huge cities, just 50 righteous people, can you spare them? God goes, yeah. All right, 40. Yeah, 30. Yeah, 20. Down to 10. God says, yes. 10 would have been enough to save those two exceedingly wicked cities. Jesus calls us salt and light because we affect those around us in a positive and holy manner. And Paul's going to continue. You, you don't get it? All right, Paul's going to continue. Children are proof of this. People could have thought, oh no, if, my, if, you, if you didn't read this before, people could have thought, oh no, uh, my husband is a pagan. He's not a Christian. So if we have kids, they're like mixed breeds. They're like half-breeds, right? And he says, no. He says, no, they're not half-breeds. On the account that the believer, our children, are also covered, which leads us, in particular, in faith to baptize infants of believing parents or even a believing parent, which happened in the case of Lydia in Acts chapter 16, verse 15. After she was baptized, this is just a woman, she was baptized, and then in Acts 16, 15, it says, and her household as well. She got to baptize her entire household. And she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So they stayed at Lydia's house, right? And so this is what Paul continues to argue for. Don't divorce. If they want to stay, you, what you do is you affect much more than you realize because it is God who's giving you the blessing. But in verse 15, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is the fourth and final group. If this unbelieving part person wants to depart from them, what does the Bible say? If the unbelieving partner wants to depart, then fight them. No, it doesn't say that. If the unbelieving partner wants to depart, then say, Oh no, you can't leave. Who else is going to give him the gospel? He needs me or she needs me. Nope, doesn't say that either. It says, let him go. Let her go. And in those cases, you are not enslaved, meaning you are not bound or in bondage, right? This is the language Paul liked to use of those that are married, which we like to particularly use as well. Like in Romans chapter 7, verse 2, marriage is like a bond. You're bound, right? And so he continues on by saying, God has called you to peace. God has called you to peace. And you might be like, what does that have to do with anything? But God has called you to peace means there shouldn't be constant quarreling in the home especially about church matters. 
If you keep saying, oh no, who will save him? Oh, who will bring him to Christ? Verse 16 answers it by saying, how do you know you can save him or her? You don't. But in the meantime, you would have destroyed your peace, and that means you would have destroyed your home and your witness. Because who saves people? God does the saving. In fact, it is only those whom God calls that can hear his voice, and only those that are born from above that can see the kingdom, as it says in John chapter 3. God doesn't need you to fight with your spouse, thereby giving trauma to your entire household. So, what does this all boil down to? If you're single, stay single. Unless you burn with passion, then don't sin, get married. If you're married to a Christian, then stay married. If you're married to a non-Christian and he or she wants to stay, then let them stay. If you're married to a non-Christian and they want to go, then let them go. Boil this down further. It means whatever your marital state, use it to glorify God. Whatever your marital state, use it to glorify God. Let your life be a testimony and confession of not my will, but yours be done as Jesus prayed. May your prayers be the Lord have your way in me so that you can bear the fruit you want him to bear inside you for his glory. And I want to end with this. Mind you, this is why the church is here. This is why the church is here. We are here as intimate, immediate family members to help each other along the way, to pray for you, to carry each other's burdens, because no matter what marital state you are in, we are journeying together to eternity. That's why we're all here for each other. This is what we must do. And so whatever your marital state right now, this very moment, use it to glorify God. Give Jesus all the glory. He's the one that will dispense the gift. Trust in him and build the church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time, for giving us your word as we go through each verse, as we go through each section. We are not just challenged, but these are instructions that are incredibly heavy for so many of us. And so we lean upon you, the Holy Spirit, to give us the strength that we need to carry out the commands you give us. We know that you've given us these commands for our joy and benefit, for your glory. So help us to thankfully and joyfully follow you. Let's take this time to pray. And perhaps you do fall inside one of these four categories uh, in a big and major way as well. Pray that you can obey God, follow Him. It's God who gives us these commands for our benefit, for His glory. So pray trusting in Him, ask Him for strength for today because tomorrow will have its own troubles. And so let's pray that we can glorify Him in our current marital state. Let's pray.